Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian startup ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. A Newcastle company like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, and this is a special episode of the history of the Australian startup ecosystem. This episode was recorded live at Fishburners as part of the Sparks Festival in October last year, 2022, to celebrate the launch of the history of the Australian startup ecosystem documentary. The event included a panel of eight guests, each representing a different corner of the startup ecosystem. This discussion, which was hosted by editor of Startup Daily, Simon Thompson, was so interesting and inspiring that we decided we wanted to share it here in this feed. This panel included former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, founding partner of One Ventures, Michelle Deeker, CEO of the CSIRO, Larry Marshall, co-founder of Early Work, Marina Wu, co-founder of Blackbird, Nikki Shavak, CEO of Aussie Angels, Cheryl Mack, founder of Nice2, Preeti Mohan, and the former, or at the time of the recording, CEO of Fishburners, Alan Jones. The episode also includes a short panel with me alongside members of the Day One FM team, Andy Jones and Will Cho, who were instrumental in making this series possible. Great to have you all here. Budjari Gamaru in language. What an amazing thing. History is written by those who turn up, they say, but you still need someone the, the madrigal who tells the story, sings the song along the way. And Adam, you are that person. Uh, look, it's just extraordinary. I am in awe. I've been doing this for 30 years now, mate. I am absolutely in awe of what you and your team and your long-suffering partners have done to make this happen. You guys are incredibly lucky to have your stories told by a man with this much passion and talent. Uh, Malcolm, I'm going to start with happy birthday, by the way. I think it was the other day. So, But I want us, you to tell your origin story around tech. You know, there are some fabulous old ones about the lawyering times that you had a great time. But, of course, that internet thing that you did. What was it that got you interested in that space? According to some of my friends, I get bored quickly. So I've always been very keen on, on new things. It's a state of mind, really, and I think actually culture and attitude is probably the single most important thing in innovation, but um, I've started a lot of businesses or co-started or helped start a lot of businesses in my life, and the most notorious one, I suppose, was Aussie Mail, which Sean Howard was the real founder, you know, was the technical founder of, and I was the kind of an early financier and chairman, etc. but it was amazing. The uh, internet was just starting, and... A lot of people didn't think it would work. I mean, we went to see Kerry Packer famously and uh, tried to get him to invest. And he, uh, we gave him the pitch and he said, nah. He said, nah, internet, nah. <laughs> internet, nah. Yeah, and it'll never work. It'll only be good for 
porn <laughs> and gambling. And we got out onto the street. We got out, we were like, we were thrown out basically. And we got out onto the street and uh, Sean and I looked at each other, as Trevor was there too. We said, well, yeah, but still big markets, big markets, <laughs> you know. I mean, even if he's right, still a big market. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I just conclude with one thing about the, the pace. I reckon the pace of change is accelerating like so much. In the mid-90s, by the mid-90s when the internet was clearly commercial and it was obvious that certain types of legacy media were going to be destroyed and the first would be classified advertising. I mean, it's just crazy, you know, the idea that you go through mountains of newsprint, you know, to find a car or a house or something like that. It was obvious going to happen. It was an entire Saturday morning finding yeah, a job yeah, rather than Googling it. Totally. To, to, yeah, when I was in Parliament, I used to go and talk to schools, right? And I would go and talk, to some still, some still do, talk to a bunch of teenagers, you know, nowadays and you explain that, you know, 30 years ago people used to wade through acres of newsprint to, you know, find a classified advertisement. You may as well be telling them about dinosaurs and the Flintstones. It's just, I mean, their eyes are rolling, you know. So thinking, is this old man putting me on? You know? Anyway, the, the only the point of my story is simply this, this is the short point. It was obvious that type, that type of media was finished, right, by the mid-90s, obvious. Classified revenues continued to grow and didn't peak until, depending on the market, 2006, 2007. So the point is that very often, you know, the inevitability of change, the penetrating glimpse of the obvious, if you like, is not obvious to most people. But I think that time between when the trend is obvious and when it just hits, you know, when, when the legacy industries get mugged by reality has become much compressed. Mm. Absolutely. Larry, that idea about innovation before, I was reminded, and it was back in the 80s, I was given a book by Roger Van Ock called A Whack in the Side of the Head. And the thing I remember about it was that for some people, innovation is finding a faster way home, which made me think of you, Malcolm and Lucy, in terms of 30-minute cities. You know, what a great idea. That's that innovation in that space. Where do you think that day one was that you had a sense of it in terms of Australian innovation and opportunity? Yeah, um, not until I went to Stanford um, and I, it was the opposite experience that I had going to university here in Australia, which was in the late 80s to be fair, so a long time ago. My first company, um, Fibrotech, um, I invented this thing called the iSafe laser, which basically let you use lasers in public. I could shine it through this audience and it wouldn't hurt your eyes at power levels that would blind at other wavelengths. And it was really, it was a cool invention. It was the predecessor to the supermarket scanner, but unfortunately it was a bit too early, <laughs> as often is the case with innovation, science-driven innovation. You don't want to be too early because you run out of money. Um, <laughs> but my, my, the, the, the CEO of that company where I invented it, we had a massive falling out because he came to me one day and said, I've got this great market for your ISAFE laser. We're going to use it for rangefinders, for tanks and missiles and guns and, you know. And if you're a scientist, you don't get terribly excited about that sort of thing. So I thought, oh, well, I want to go and commercialise it somewhere else. And he said, if you leave, I will sue you. And that was fighting words. So I left and I started my own company and he sued me. And I probably would never have done it if he, if he hadn't, but adversity drives innovation. Um, so I had to invent something different and that's how the green laser came up. And then fast forward 25 years, Malcolm was in the valley and said, I bet you could never run CSIRO. I bet you couldn't do it. <laughs> so 
had to find out, didn't I? So did I win the bet? <laughs> just asking, just asking. You've got to believe in yourself, right. Larry. Let's, let's I think I lost. Show, I think I lost. Show of hands, who thinks he lost the bet? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Love you all. Name your price, Larry. Michelle, um, tell us about your story in coming into this space and then, of course, that investor side of it, which, going back to what Larry was saying, there are so many great ideas that are before their time and really the runway is the failure of our imagination at the time rather than the capital in some ways. Tell us about your experience. Yeah, uh, look, they, they always say that everything has a time when it comes and sometimes you've just got to be lucky enough to have your company or your innovation extend to the point where the time comes and you can really hit the market running. And I'd always been quite entrepreneurial. I have very entrepreneurial parents by background, which was very lucky for me. So I had really good role models. And so I was always trying to you know, do business and invent business, even when I was at university. I was running a sort of fairly boring, margin on headcount tech business after I'd left university. I had a PhD in applied science. My mother-in-law came home. We gave her a gift voucher for Mother's Day. And um, my then husband turned around and said, gift vouchers on the internet, that'd be a good thing to do. And this was in the days when, you know, we were all connecting with dial-up connections to the internet and, you know, things were pretty archaic. And I just, I just looked and thought, it's the best idea you've ever had. Went home, <laughs> brought all the domain names in the world and created one of Australia's first fintech companies that eventually put all the technology behind the prepaid cards and electronic voucher market. And then I sold that business um, started angel investing, learning about the investment world. And uh, one of my mentors said, hey, Michelle, you should think about venture capital. And I had actually talked to some venture capitalists in the very early days of the Australian VC scene, the Allen and Buckridges, uh, technology venture partners. And, but I got all my funding uh, from high net worths and family offices for that business. And I didn't know if I'd really done that well. And somebody said, oh, you know, what was your IRR? And I said, oh, what's an IRR? I thought I'd better learn this finance, <laughs> finance world. And uh, my mentor said I should consider venture capital. And I was very lucky that I got an introduction to Southern Cross Venture Partners. And then um, one day I'm sitting in Southern Cross Venture Partners doing my day a week. And in walks this really cool guy from Silicon Valley <laughs> called Larry Marshall. And I was, I was really impressed. And, um, and Larry was like one of my first introductions to real venture capital, which is being forward thinking, willing to take risk, investing in ideas, backing great founders. And that really, you know, grabbed me. And I really loved that idea. And because I was entrepreneurial, I decided to set up One Ventures and brought in two co-founders, Paul Kelly and Anne-Marie Burkle, and we raised our first fund in the global financial crisis. But hey, you know, if you can take a you know, tech company through a tech crash and out the other side, maybe you can raise a venture capital firm out of the ashes of the global financial crisis, and that's what we did. Fantastic. Isn't that an amazing story? <laughs> One of those 150-plus stories. I don't know about you guys, but he generally does about 30, 45 minutes, and for me that's a reasonable gym workout. As you can see, it's not doing a lot, but at least... <laughs> It's because I keep stopping to listen at the really good parts that you guys are talking about. Nikki, I want to ask you, and that whole notion of venture capital, because 
I think we all grew up, and Malcolm knows this well, you know, private equity was a big thing for a long time, and, and it was that initial sense that, that venture capital was just private equity with better T-shirts. Um, what was that moment where you guys sort of started to see that there were critical factors, tech, and everything coalescing together to create what was that sense of an actual startup ecosystem? I, I would maybe take a sort of step back, and I think sort of, Beyond venture capital, the magic of Silicon Valley is when someone creates a technology company, they invest and help in the next generation of founders. And I think, you know, back in, uh, moved back to Australia at the end of 2009, 10 sort of period, and it was very clear that we had already had a group of successful founders, but they're all kind of disconnected. And if someone succeeded, they bought a house in Byron Bay and kind of disconnected rather than to invest and help the next generation. I think that that successful generation in the 2010 period we're interested in helping that next generation. So I think more than anything else, that the practice of venture capital, when it is a community of founders helping the next generation, I think that's that's how you build an ecosystem. And it's 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 not a finance business, it's not spreadsheets, it's not numbers, it's it's products and and these strange characters called founders who who actually go and do something and, and don't talk about doing something. And so um, I think more than anything else of like venture capital or not, it was that group of founders um, interested in helping the next generation that really was, for me at least, um, the, the reason why the ecosystem kind of kick-started at that time. I'm just going to pick up on, yeah, go, clap away. <laughs> Give them a cheer. I'm going to quickly throw this open to anyone who wants to jump in on it, um, that notion. How much is faith? You talked about spreadsheets. I mean, you're still going to do due diligence and all of those parts and you have serious conversations as many of not, you had not really. this I, year. I, I, but the people faith. say, what due diligence do you do? But like in, in, a, in a fresh company with two people with an idea, it's like the best because there's nothing to do uh, from a due diligence. Um, Which standard. is why I want to talk about faith and I would like you to all talk about this. It's the faith that the founders have. It's the faith that the investors have. What does that sense of faith mean to all of you guys as you go through life, either as investors, founders, or creators? That's a tough one, but I'm one of those people who's like glasses overflowing optimist. So I tend to talk to a founder and I like, I love to get ingrained in their world. And for that 30 minutes where I'm talking to them, anything is possible. Their whole world and their vision of the future is is completely possible. And so I think when it comes down to faith, it's it's, how much can you believe in that founder's idea and their vision of the future? And sometimes I get off the call and, and the answer becomes no, but you know, a lot of the time it is absolutely like, I, I'm gonna put faith, faith in you and, and your ability to execute on this. Larry? I did six startups and got lucky, really lucky with two of them. Every single one of them um, had a near-death experience or literally went insolvent. And I'm not kidding, every, every single one of them. And, and the only thing that pulled them through was was the faith that the team had in themselves, in each other. So for me, and I've never really crossed over to venture, really. I have sort of and come back and forth, you know. But for me, it's always, would I join this team? You know, would I follow this founder? And they're the people that I invest in. Um, and, oh, my God, Nikki talked me into some crazy investments, like crazy <laughs> shit. But at the end of the day, you've just got to ask, as he, you say it more eloquently, but yeah, if you, if you really believe in those, in those people, um, it, it's amazing what they can achieve. They walk through walls, they change the world. And, and for me as a scientist, that's, you know, that's why we did science, so we could change the world. Alan, I'm going to ask you, because you're one of my favourite evangelists, you can't help but be swept up in what you say and what you talk about. That evangelising in the ecosystem, how important is that in what we do? 
Well, on the topic of faith, too, I just wanted to say that, that we're all wrong all, all of the time. And, and, and thank God there's a power law in venture capital um, <laughs> because a lot of the time we're wrong. And, and, and you know, like real diversification is listening to other people's opinion on what they think of a founder. And so I think one of the most powerful things about that accelerator program or incubator model that we have in Australia is, is that um, your mentors and potential investors in a startup actually get to bounce off each other. Well, what do you think of this team? What do you, what do you think of them? Because you know, I've been wrong well, you know, more often than I was right. You know, I, I wrote my biggest check over as an angel investor into, into the first Blackbird Ventures Fund. And, uh, and Nick immediately um, invested some of my money in, in a startup that I had just passed on um, maybe a month <laughs> or so previously, and I sent him quite a heated email saying, "What the hell? You know, I'm just getting started in VC, and this is what you're doing to me." And uh, and this was a, you know a tiny little Australian team with absolutely no track record, and their mission was to try and build Adobe Photoshop and a web browser. And I was just like that is just so impossible to do with Australian tech talent at the time. And I even knew Cam Adams at the time. I didn't think he was capable of that. So so. <laughs> That was a good one. Yes, that was a cracker. <laughs> um, and, and so we, I guess, you know, faith is, is so important for, for the early backers of the company, but also the founders themselves. When you meet with somebody, when you have a coffee with an investor and they say, thanks, but no, or you're too early, or this doesn't seem like the right fit for us, persist because we are wrong more often than we are right. One of these days, you could be the power law return for the fund manager who does decide to back you. Does that help? Absolutely. And, and, and you'll tell us about the time you knock back the Beatles um, a little later. Um, Preeti, uh, you know, you've had this incredible career along the way. You're down in Adelaide. You grew up in Chennai. We were talking a little bit earlier about how extraordinary India is in transforming itself and becoming a tech powerhouse. When did you become conscious of what was going on around you and say, this is for me? I think I've always had a enthusiasm to start a business and the notion of startups didn't exist when I was growing up. So it was really when, once I left university, I saw like Google coming up and all these other brilliant companies. I was like, I actually, I remember telling someone, I want to build the next Google. <laughs> and then I worked at Google and I gave the same speech when I worked there. <laughs> so... There's been different stages, but I think it's all had me coming back to startups. This incredible panel and ev what everyone does, every event I go to is just so incredibly inspirational. I do want to ask, um, I suppose, the founders here along the way before I get to you, Marina, is that sense of, I'm always fascinated by founders who get to a certain point and then take off and do the next one. Because it's kind of like you love having the Lego set on the ground, all in pieces. The minute you've built it, it's like you just want it out of the house. Um, <laughs> is that a real state of mind that you're conscious of as founders? And as investors, do you guys see it as well? Marina? Well, I'm still on startup number one. So I was still pretty early into that. So I haven't honestly thought that far. But honestly, I feel like the problem space that we're tackling is so big that it's not something that can really be... You build a little bit, then you let it go. Um, we think there's such a big opportunity in helping early career talent get the jobs that they want, upskill in the roles in like startups and tech. And it's such a growing ecosystem as well. There's no way it's going to just like one day and stop. So I really think that we're tackling like a 10, 20, even more year problem here. So there's a long way to go, but we're, we're just at the start. Cheryl, I'm going to start with you on this one because one of the things that I've noticed over the decade or so that I've been covering this space is 
that rise of alternative capital sources. Venture capital is crucial to this and it's been the absolute sort of petrol on the barbie in the whole ecosystem. But, you know, we've now got crowdfunding, we've got venture debt, we're now seeing the secondary opportunity. So you can even be an LP now and cash out early if you need to. The angel investment, the government-backed angel funds, what do you see as missing from the mix at this point in time? We've absolutely seen like a diversification in the types of funding that startups are able to access over the last probably like three to five years, which as you can see from the board, is a very small piece of our history, right? So if we look at like where the those options in terms of funding have come from, they've really been in like half of that last board there. Really, for I think when I look at the ecosystem, I think we're getting there and it's a sign of maturity that our ecosystem is starting to diversify in terms of the types of funding that you can receive. Um, what I'd like to see next is an increase in the number of each of those. So like we've got one or two uh, actually three, four maybe now, like venture debt and uh, revenue-based financing options, which are more debt providers. Um, I'd love to see that number jump to like 10 to 12. If you look at the US, there's hundreds, right? So we're not necessarily like, you know, if there are 300 million people worth 30, you know, we should be saying a 10x less, not necessarily like, uh, you know, a one, three hundredth of an option here. So I think we need lots more options in each of these buckets. And then the one piece that I think we're still missing is options for founders who are not necessarily going the VC-backed route. It's an amazing like venture path. I'm on it myself. Um, I'm an investor in a number of funds, so I'm a huge proponent of that model. But there are many, many, many amazing businesses that don't necessarily fit that very niche model that is venture funding. Uh, and I think we're missing out on a lot of opportunity there for funding for them. I was to say, um, diversity of investors as well. So a lot of us here in the room calling for change on, on the definition of a sophisticated wholesale investor. We still lock most of Australians out of investing in, in tech. And, and if we're going to become an innovation-powered nation, we have to take the whole nation along with us. There has to be change to those laws to allow more Australians and more walks of life to, uh, you know, it's crazy that you can walk down to the TAB and put 30 grand on the Melbourne Cup next week um, and you can't do that with, with a tech startup. Or drop it on crypto. Or drop it on crypto, yes. I'm going to stay on that diversity theme that we had a little bit earlier and ask you guys, Michelle, you've just put together WinVC, um, so this is about getting more women in, let's say, the deal flow of people. Um, in terms of being involved in the space. What does diversity mean to you when you look at it and how, where do we need to make greater gains? From One Venture's point of view, we've actually won the industry award for diversity in BC four of five years that they've run it and the only year we didn't win it was when we didn't apply. <laughs> um, and the reason for that is because we are 50-50 women in our teams, but not only that, diversity is broader than that for us. It's, you know, the cultural, different cultural backgrounds, different ethnicities. And, and that's really important because when we're looking at companies that we're going to back, we want to make sure that we're not um, actually have a subconscious bias that um, makes us turn around, uh, turn away opportunities that might become great opportunities. So I really believe that diversity makes us better investors, better decision making um, across the board by having a you know difference of thought um, in the VC room. But also when we're thinking about backing founders, 
And One Ventures is about quite a lot of female founders because we have quite a few females in the partner team. And I also think that the other thing we want to see more of is more um, female leadership and ownership. Because once you get more leadership and ownership, the diversity will increase. Um, you can have women in teams, but it's not quite the same as ownership and leadership. So that's something that I'm looking forward to. Um, WinVC, put together by Andrea Gardner, Ingrid Mays and myself, um, is really designed to try and support women to become more successful investors, to foster women into the industry and to help us support more female entrepreneurs. So um, really, you know, thanks to Innovation Bay who are giving us support on that program as well, but it's a really important program for us. Marina, you're part of that sort of next generation that's now coming through. How do you think about and approach it? And do you have to explain it along the way? So, yeah, I think um, the Earlywood community, we have 4,000 people all sort of zero to five years in their careers. So I think we have, we're pretty close to what's happening for um, the younger generation. And it's quite obvious still, like in our community, I think we're like 65 men, 35 women, which is okay, but obviously there's still a long way to go. I think a lot of these things start much earlier than careers. It actually starts in university even. Um, so there's actually something very strange that happens when you know you enter university and you don't get any sort of exposure into like startups and tech and all the boys who do computer science, that's the careers they sort of go into. Um, there's so much to be done and I think there's a lot to be, uh, especially on the top of funnel sort of level. Um, Dan told me recently that's called tofu, so I'm going to start referring to that as tofu from now on. So there's tofu, mofu, bofu, that's what I learned. So I think there's so much to be done in terms of bringing more women into, the world, uh, into this tech and startup world. It's very easy to see there aren't a lot of us, especially women of colour. Um, it's providing the opportunities for the employer side to actually think about like you know, we need to have different voices in the room. And it starts even earlier than that, like high school, university, it's not something that can be done in one spot of the journey. Preeti, um, Lauren talked about walking into the room and not knowing anyone. Um, the one thing about a journalist is you actually stay to the end until the bar runs dry, so it's a slightly <laughs> different experience. But did you have a sense as you started working as an entrepreneur that you were one of a kind or did you look around and see? Because we talk about that see it to be it all the time and I think we're getting better at it but there's still a long way to go. I think every entrepreneur thinks they're one of a kind. True. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I completely agree. Like um, I started a community called F2F which is um, bringing together women founders and funders because what we found is that a lot of the conversations are way too transactional and you don't actually get to know one, an one another and support one another. And then now I've evolved F2F into Nice2, which is all about representing underrepresented people in startups and tech. And basically what we want to do is bring underrepresented people along with allies together in a room so we can all work together and create a community of support and we know at least half the room when we leave an event. M Malcolm. Yep. The extraordinary thing about being the Prime Minister of the nation is you get to meet everyone. You go everywhere, you know, you realise just how rich this country is because a lot of us do sort of tend to sit in our little tribe and not go too far. I've covered politics for a long time and 
I've always noticed there are Prime Ministers who appeal to your better angels and those who don't. You are one who often appeal to our better angels and I thank you and I remain eternally grateful for that. What do you think we still need to do better when it comes to being a more diverse and accepting nation? Because it's felt like the last couple of years have got pretty tough. A lot of it, come, it comes from the top. There are political leaders who seek to unite you know, the, the country and try to bring people together. That's absolutely what I did. I don't think too many people would argue with that, but, but there are a lot of, there is another political strategy which is to uh, either exacerbate and exploit divisions or indeed create them and, uh, you know, turn one part of the community against the other. The, the problem is that divisive approach can be very successful if success means winning elections but it is hugely destructive and, you know, I know we're we, hypercritical of ourselves in Australia, but oh my God, look at the United States at the moment, I mean, really. <laughs> I mean, who would believe that people are seriously questioning whether democracy can survive in the United States? And they really are. I mean, we, you know, Australians, Australians are vastly more optimistic about the prospects for political stability in Washington than any Americans are. You know, I mean, we are so naive, um, quite frankly, and we're just sort of just hoping that everything will get sorted out. You know, points everyone's been making, diversity, uh, multiculturalism, focusing on the things that unite us, and just, and you can't ban divisive speech, uh, not in our culture, you can't, but you've got to call it out for what it is. And you know, when people are dog whistling, you know, being racist or divisive or whatever, you've got to be prepared to call it out. And it's, uh, and I think it's, yeah, I think that's, that's what it's all about. And I mean, if you see, look, I'll, I'll just give you one little, I just want to give you one little bit of really good news, right? We are very lucky with our electoral system. You know, I mean, America's the most consequential democracy in the world, and I think it could implode. In fact, a lot of Americans fear that too. We have compulsory voting, fantastic. We have an electoral commission which is independent and draws the boundaries, so no gerrymandering. And we have preferential voting, ranked choice voting. That is what enabled the Teals at the last election. Now obviously it's a big deal when you get a change of government from Liberal to Labor or Labor to Liberal, whatever, but the most significant thing was those independents, and that was basically people, people power, doing what actually drives most internet innovation, which is recognising that people want to have a say and want to have a choice, right? Giving people a choice always works. Remember, if you're all too young to remember the walled gardens, remember when AOL thought the walled garden, you know, this internet thing won't work, people would be happier in a walled garden. Yeah, right, that worked for about <laughs> five minutes, you know, until they got to sort of 56 kilobit per second, you know, modems. Ask your grandparents what they were. Uh, the, uh, um, they, but the bottom line is our electoral system is actually one of the things that has made our democracy much more resilient. And we, you know, we've really got to celebrate that. We're not perfect, but boy, you, know, you look across the Pacific there, I mean the whole you know, Western democratic world depends on the viability of the United States. And it's, uh, it is really in peril at the moment. We shouldn't kid ourselves about that. We talked a little bit earlier about 
ideas being ahead of their time. So I want to ask you, was Innovation Nation one of those? I was fist pumping at the time. I was pretty, pretty pleased. We thought this was a golden age for what I was doing at the digital media company I was at. How do we bring people along for that ride? Because I think that goes in when you've got new ideas, you've got challenging ideas, and I'm going to throw this open to everyone. When you are changing the world, it is fearful at times. You don't know what is next. How do you create an environment where you can embrace the change and not want to just put up the walled garden? Well, well can I just say, the, the, you know, the National Innovation Science Agenda and all of my rabbiting on about innovation was obviously quite important. And I think in a way the advocacy was as, was as important as the measures. Uh, and, you know, and also saying honest things like, you know, when people said, are all these measures going to work? Will you guarantee they'll work? And saying, well, actually, no, can't guarantee they'll all work. Some of them probably won't work. The best ideas we've got at the time, the things that work we'll do more of, the things that don't work we'll dump. You know, I mean, I, like I've got, I went into politics at the age of 50 as a you know, business person. I wasn't, so I just, I, I kept on making these terrible political mistakes of saying what I, saying what I really thought. Uh, <laughs> anyway, bottom line is, the bottom line is this. The people in politics and in the political media who said, innovation might have been a good thing economically but was a bad idea politically, are the same idiots who said in the Liberal Party, the base of the Liberal Party, the base, sort of a Donald Trump term, the base, the base. <laughs> the base are the people that listen to 2GB and watch Sky After Dark, right? Now, the reality is the base of a political party are the people that habitually vote for you. And there's a whole bunch of them that habitually voted for the Liberal Party decided they weren't going to vote for them anymore and that's why you've got all those teals and a Labor government. So the, the Australians are so much smarter than most of the people who talk about politics. And they, rec I mean, of course innovation can be scary for some people, of course it can be. You know, you say, gosh, does this mean some kids with an iPad's gonna get my job? But the, <laughs> but, but the, but, but the, and the answer is, the answer is, you just got to make sure you get the iPad first, right? <laughs> because because the, the, the fundamental, you know, the fundamental reality is, and I, you know, you're right, I've been all around the country, it's a great privilege, Prime Minister, you do have your own plane, so it makes it easy. Uh, <laughs> but you talk to everybody, honestly, you know, you listen to the guys from the National Party in Canberra, they'll tell you climate change is a hoax. Talk to farmers, they know it's happening. You talk, you hear people say, oh, you know, read The Australian or something and they'll say, oh, innovation's overdone or whatever. You go out to people, you know, working, you know, in the, in the coal mining industry, right? They know that coal's coming to an end. They know they're making a fortune at the moment, but they know this isn't going to happen forever. And they'll say to you, what's next? What's the plan? You know, what's the next step? So people are smarter than most of the people. People are smarter about politics and political issues than most of the commentators and politicians for the simple reason that they're living in a little echo chamber of their own. And I mean, that, that you know, frankly, is one of the problems we have with, with, you know, the nature of the media and the way when you were young, when we were both young, we used to talk about narrow casting. I mean, you know, if you can monetize an audience today that would have been like completely inconceivably able to be monetized, you know, 20 years ago. So that's, that creates this sort of disjointed reality. Anyway, bottom line is the people are smarter than the pundits.
I'm, I'm going to just throw this one open too because going back to what you're saying, there is this generation of digital natives but we still seem to have this disconnect when it comes to them going down this next path. Marina, you were talking about it before, Preeti to an extent as well. Um, what do we do so that I, the, the numbers should say that given everyone knows how to work an iPad, um, you know, under my age, um, why don't we have this natural follow through in terms of this skills base? We've got this massive skills gap right now and we're still sort of fretting over how we sort of address it. What do we do to create that greater engagement with the younger generation? Marina? Um, I think it's worth calling out the things that definitely changing. It's probably a little bit slower and maybe hard to notice. I, we did a couple of polls in our community and 20% of them considered themselves to be founders. So do 4,000 members, 20% of that, that's a pretty big number of potential founders in there. And there could be a, a side hustle stage, it could be a blog, but I think that entrepreneurial thinking is really there. And it's not just in the founder space, it's even people who want to be tech or startup operators. So. The ownership mentality is really there. 70% um, I think of our community won't take a job without equity. So they really actually want to be like bought into your business. So I think things are actually heading in the right direction, but um, to your point, Simon, around like employers looking for skills, but there's a bit of a gap. It's, this is especially true for early career talent. So employers are looking for signals. What signals do we have? University degrees. And that's really all there is to go for a very long time and university signals just say like this person has like a baseline of quality, they've done a few group assignments, they've got some soft skills, like that's good. But I think um, there's a lot to be done in terms of employees, you know, we can talk about how they can change hiring processes, we can talk about how candidates can, you know, do more side hustles and get their skills like to shine instead of like their university degrees. But I think there's fundamentally a bit of a mismatch in terms of um, the connection or the bridge between employers and candidates and universities aren't really doing that job. So, I mean, we're, we're doing a lot of work in this area right now, so I guess um, stay tuned. Sorry team if I gave away too much, but um, I think that's a really interesting problem to be solving. Marina, I think that was a teaser, you didn't give too much away there. Michelle, you're working on this too with WinVC as an example of it. What would you say? I mean, is it a case of lobbying governments? The government is making the right noises in the budget around getting kids into TAFE free and looking at more vet stuff and trying to sort of engage at a greater level. One of the things that WinVC wants to do is really to engage young women to think about a career to move into venture capital or founding a company. But in particular for us, it's, you know, maybe to come in and consider a career in this area. And uh, that means thinking about reaching back down into both universities, but even starting in school level, so that people understand and they can see role models, um, people that they can look up to and think, yes, I could be that person. And it's just like the panel was saying earlier, I could be that person and I could do that role and have that job. But we also have to remember that we do have these digital natives and a lot of them go to university and actually, um, from a technology point of view, they're bored um, because a lot of the universities are still not educating in the new way of the new world. And we're probably going to start to see a lot of corporate innovation and corporate universities growing up alongside universities because they're actually starting to realise that maybe they can educate people for the jobs they want today. Um, and I think we're going to see a bit more of that too. 
that we'll end up with more of the Murray Herps of the world who end up in institutions like that and make it happen. Alan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, okay. One thing that encourages me with working with, with young people in tech is, is that um, people of my generation, when we think, oh, I need some engineering done, I'm going to have to go and hire somebody who studied engineering at university and has had a, you know, 10 years into a career as an engineer, software or hardware. Younger Australians are starting to, to feel like engineering, building something is actually just a, a set of skills, not much more broadly than being able to use Microsoft Office, you know. I need some, some front end on this software tool I've been building with my friend. I'm going to teach myself some, some software engineering. We've got an awesome young woman on the Fishburners team, Magella. She started with us as a product manager. She took it on herself to, to build a new version of the Founders Hub platform that we use to connect all of our members. She's been, been low coding that in, in Bubble. Um, and we now have, we're, we're on track to do about 100K in revenue this year um, of Founders Hub. Magella's not here tonight, but she's you know, 22, 23. And, and mentoring uh, Murray Herbst's um, student uh, entrepreneurs at, at UTS Startups. Um, I got to meet a couple of young fellows, one who was, was studying software engineer and, and, and the other one was, was business and marketing. And I just read in the AFR the other day, they raised it three and a half million, that's, uh, that's Clipboard. And that entire team, I think they have about 12, 15 people now. I don't think there's, there's one person over the age of 25 in that team. So I, I, I think like the plasticity and the, and the flexibility of, of, of young people is, is awesome. We don't have to go, okay, first have to go and raise $5 million from, from a venture fund so I can go and employ a team of people who've been engineers for 10 years. It's just, I'm a founder, I've got a Swiss army knife full of skills, and for the next three, six months I need to do some software engineering. I think that's a huge benefit to Australia. Larry, before we turn our attention to the future, although this is part of that, how do we have our kids growing up wanting to be the next Larry Marshall, if only so you can win bets with a Prime Minister? You know, I'm sort of thinking about that role model you have as a leader of one of the great, much-loved organisations of Australia, um, rather than sort of being, you know, a Penrith fullback or, you know, manly forward, um, as your goal. So it took that much beloved organisation 101 years to reach the stage green zone for gender diversity. 101 years. It took 101 years for that organisation to appoint its first senior female business unit leader. Um, it took about five years for it to get to the green zone for women in leadership in the organisation and about the same time to get to 2% um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander diversity and 35% um, non-English speaking background diversity and about 5% um, Australians with dis disability diversity. But the, that first 100 years, it didn't move much at all. It was stuck. Um, the reason I mention it is the, the, the challenge with the future is diversity. Most countries that are growing in their innovation skills um, have a growing STEM pipeline. They're graduating more engineers, technologists, scientists. Our pipeline has been declining for decades. But worse than that, we lose half of the young girls from STEM between grade four and grade eight, half. That's not it, we, we can't have a future like that. So, so that, that turnaround in CSIRO, so CSIRO has made an amazing turnaround, right? It's no limit to the amount of praise this it, guy it, can take. So it's just, the, honestly, just, I tell you, with Larry, just lay it on with the trowel, right? <laughs> he will never tell you to stop. Stop. <laughs> the, the, the only reason it was successful is because we fixed the diversity challenge. And it's not fixed yet. It's not fixed. We're on a journey. But it is so much better than it was. So those innovations, those things that drove the growth 
Right? It's the first sustained growth the organization's seen in 30 years. Um, but the people that created those innovations, things like, I wanted to do this when you were Prime Minister, I wanted to get you holding that. Things like future feed. Is that a, is that a prohibited <laughs> substance? Future feed. Feed, feed, not weed. Eliminates, mm. eliminates emissions from cattle. A seemingly impossible problem solved by Australian scientists, female scientists, indigenous scientists, non-English speaking background scientists. Most of the innovations, of the 180 companies that Syro created in its whole existence, over 100 of them were created in the last five years because the diversity is so much better than it was. But for the rest of the country and our STEM pipeline, it's going the wrong way. <laughs> so we have, we have to fix that. I have one more for you. Yeah. So this is green gold. Green gold. But gold is produced using really toxic elements that are bad for the environment, cyanide and arsenic. This is an Australian invention, gold made completely sustainably with no environmental impact, no toxic elements. Again, um, indigenous science, um, non-English speaking background science, and gender diversity science. You can hold that if you want. No, actually, I, I might need this for funding. Thanks, Michael. Maybe I'll give it to Michelle. This is, uh, uh, one of those uh, That's the power of diversity. Would, be, would that be gravity? Would that fix be one that? Of the we'll fix everything. <laughs> I just had this vision of you two are sat on a Waldorf doing weekend at Bernie's with that bag then. It was Nikki. Let's look forward, but I do so also, also want to ask you about the role of capital and sort of the paths and the opportunities that you create. Tell us about how you wear that crown of responsibility as you look around. Your job is to deliver returns for investors. So in terms of who turns up, you're blind. It's all about the idea. But there must be something in the back of your head that's or in your mind that sort of says, okay, it can't all be the same people over and over again. Absolutely. I think uh, oftentimes with investing and, and what's the best financial return um, is non-obvious and you look at the world's largest companies and if you reround when they formed those companies, they looked extremely unqualified to be the CEO of the world's largest companies. They didn't finish university or they just finished university and uh, so I think it's at least venture capital success is when you push yourself to do the unknown and, and to, um, you know, I would say Australian venture capital failed for two reasons before us, uh, which was they failed to take enough risk. Um, actually, the best venture capital funds fail more than the, the, the worst venture capital funds. They're, they're pushing themselves to, again, find that power law company. And I think the second thing is Australian venture capital, when they had invested in a successful company, they sold it too early. And so mm. um, th this kind of culture oh, around, right. as soon as you get something, it's like as soon as you're happily married, you want to get a divorce. Um, um, <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Um, and you know, the, the, I, so I think bringing a, a, a sort of longer term mindset and, and, and a bigger ambition to, to, to investing, um, that's actually the, the, the best financial outcome. Uh, I think in, in, in terms of, diversity as as founders we have a saying at blackbird the hungry not the proven and um i think people as investors managing risks and blah 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 look for proven not the hungry and and the hungry at least in you know my lifetime as an investor has always outproduced the proven and mm. so to me diversity is as much about that that hungry that unknown that nobody that becomes the somebody and i think that culture of <laughs> Taking a chance um, on the on the unproven, um, I, I think, as that culturally 
ingrains into the venture capital industry will get will get better outcomes. Which is very much what science does along the way. Um, Nick, I do want to stay with you because yesterday, of course, we saw Paul and the Square Peg team announce they've got a $900 million fund. You're about to go hold my beer and pull out the billion dollar one. Um, <laughs> What will that mean in terms of the, just the capital that you guys across the board have? And we've seen, you know, uh, Ian and Andrew have put together 30 million for their early stage fund. There is all of this capital flowing in. Paint a picture of how you think it will transform this sector over the next 10 years. We've seen what it's done in the first 10. This was, as you were saying, about those later rounds so that you're not getting divorced after a couple of months. How much will this transform what Australian venture capital and Australian companies can do? I think um, I think of venture capital not as the, the the input, but as to the sort of reaction to success. And I think you know what those numbers say is that the Australian ecosystem has succeeded. Everything we hoped um, to be true in the beginning has has come true to a remarkably larger extent than we could have ever imagined. Um, in the beginning, and so I think, um, you know, I think even those numbers they sound big if we said them in 2012, but they're actually small compared to the success of the ecosystem and the success of what it will become. There, you know, the we have two companies at Lassie and Canva that generate billions of dollars of revenue in a cash flow positive Canva didn't exist 10 years ago, um, and and that those stories are beginning, not ending. And if you compound that out over the next decade, you end up with Canva and Atlassian is Australia's largest companies. Um, you end up with Canva and Atlassian with more than 100,000 employees um, each and, um, and again, all the way down from um, the, those next largest and, and, and right down to more um, ambitious and um, uh, more hungry founders, uh, beginning companies. And so I think um, you can underestimate sort of the law of how, if you just let it compound for a decade, how much that changes it doesn't double it it you know 10 10x 100x and um so i think at least in a decade for me um you have a world where technology is you know every top five company in australia is a technology company um finance and banking and mining those are the those are the afterthoughts those are the oh that's a niche little business in the <clears throat> in the back of the room and so um i think australia will end up just like america has just like china has where the largest companies are technology companies. Yeah, absolutely. I was looking at that from Bernard Salt just the other day, where, of course, the top 20 American companies are all tech. They're the Apples, the Googles, the Amazons. Out here, it's you know, a couple hundred years old worth of bank or digging stuff up. Cheryl, um, you're part of what I think is that standing on the shoulders of giants moment that companies do have, because you need that early stage capital. You're building this out. How much will that be, that initial accelerant, so that, you know, as the Blackbird team or the Square Peg or whoever is looking to deploy that later stage capital down the track, how important is what is happening now, and it's, it's an early work thing as well, in terms of what happens next for all these young early stage founders? Yeah, so with Aussie Angels, we're aiming to open up that access to uh, investing in these early stage companies for angels and investors who may not have had access to it otherwise, um, and specifically for those who want it. Um, we're not encouraging anyone to, to make investment decisions um, that they're not comfortable with, but there are a number, as, uh, as Alan said, there are a number of people in the ecosystem who can add a ton of value and want to get into this space. So we play that role um, in helping angels learn about angel investing, write their first angel 
check. And really what we hope to do is um, a number of things. One is to help some of our angels grow up and, and become the Michelles of the world um, and become the next, uh, the, the next women and, and men who are running funds uh, and can lead by example. Um, but we're also uh, you know, feeding into the larger funds. So when we uh, you know, deploy, a, you know, a syndicate might deploy 100, 200K into a really early stage founder, um, you know, the, the hope is that we can then, as angels, as a group, um, support them to you know, get the expertise and, and get the support that they need to then go on and, and raise that next round, whether it's VC or revenue-based financing or venture debt, whatever that looks like. Um, you know, we we want to be that first step for them. And I think that traditionally in Australia, we haven't had, we've had a, a funding gap at that very early stage, and we hope to address that. So uh, prior to November, October last year, uh, Australia had about about 10, 12 um, syndicates uh, on the Aussie Angels platform. We now have about 20 syndicates that are operating uh, on the platform. So we're hoping to really um, scale that up because I think we, we absolutely need more angels coming into the space and we need more early stage funding for founders. We've got a few minutes left, so I'm going to go from right to left, starting with you, Alan. Paint your dream picture of where we are in 2032. What does the Australian startup ecosystem look like? What's the bit that blows you away? <laughs> dream picture for me is I'm still alive. Um, <laughs> There's a startup found that's going to fix that for us, mate. We'll be fine. <laughs> uh, uh, well, so um, I'm very excited about uh, if, if Australia has an opportunity to continue growing companies. You know, so if Australia's biggest companies are, are Canvas and Alassians and Safety Cultures and, and so on and so forth, then you know that means a significant proportion of the value of those companies is held by its employees. And hopefully a lot of those employees will be, will be Australians and hopefully there'll be so many ways for them to deploy some of that capital into the next generation of, of, of VC that, that you know, the overarching limiting factor on the growth of the industry, the whole 25 years I've been in it has been, you know, why can't we get more capital into, in, into people with great ideas? I hope that problem will finally be solved. Then we'll solve it not by bringing, you know, the way we do now, by, by bringing family office money and, and, and you know, private equity from, from other industries, or even from other parts of the world, but we'll solve it with the people who have built the technology industry in the first place in Australia. You know, if you think about $500 billion worth of Australian tech companies and 10% of those companies held by its employees, that's an incredible force for good. From a nation of shopholders to uh, shareholders. For me, I'd love to see more diversity. Um, and when I say diversity, I mean inclusion and equity within the startup ecosystem. Um, and what that looks like is both from an investor perspective, founder perspective, and operator perspective. I want it to be 360 um, and us creating environments that are supportive, um, where there is actual representation and I think this is an important one because unless you see someone like yourself, it's hard to take a path that's, that hasn't been trodden before. So I'd love to see that um, and I'd love to see Australians solving problems for the entire world and thinking about it in a way that's really, really inclusive. Um, the next wave of uh, refugees is actually going to be climate refugees. So I'd love us to think about all of those things. Um, yeah, first of all, I want to totally echo what Preeti said. I couldn't have said it better myself in terms of like what we can do with diversity. 
I'm personally quite excited to see our next generation of grads, university students say that their dream job is to go work at a startup, go work at a tech company. Um, it could be as a software engineer, product manager, doesn't really matter. Um, that is definitely not the case today. So I'm very excited to see that, um, I guess, change in attitude towards careers. Cheryl, what are you going to be telling that 10 year old? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that just. <laughs> that really brought it home for me. Life comes at you fast. <laughs> okay, I'm going to change my answer, actually. Um, <laughs> I would love to see my son or daughter um, going to work at a startup and um, starting their own company when they're 10 years old. I mean, from, from my earlier comments, um, uh, the only thing I would add is just that cultural change around ambition, that belief that you know, Australians can do something that is the best in the world rather than just the best in Australia. And I think um, that's what I look forward to the most is that, that cultural change around the word ambition. So at One Ventures, we often talk about game changes for lasting gains. So um, a bit like Nikki, I'd love to see innovation that we develop, that we take to the world, that's making really lasting gains for society. And you know, one of our companies, Vaxus, is a vaccine patch company, and it will enable vaccination in developing world that you can't do. You know, you, you can't do that now because of cold storage and other things. So I'd love to see those great innovations out in the world that we're proud of and they're, you know, and they're Australian and building out. The other thing I would like to see is that we build out the ecosystem. So at the moment, we've got lots of bits of the ecosystem all working, but there's still a lot more that can develop in the ecosystem. So, you know, we've sort of got Angel and we've got VC, but we're missing certain, there's certain gaps in the funding market that can bring new funding back down into the BC and other ecosystems, and we've got to find new ways of doing that. So um, thinking about that. But one of the things for me is I want to see more female-led VCs. And um, that's, that's the plan, and WinVC is heading in that direction. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're not only in the top 10 in the world for our science, but we're in the top 10 in the world for innovation where we use our science to create a $50 billion global hydrogen industry exporting energy from Australia to the rest of the world to make up for the coal and natural gas that we no longer export, where we take our commodities and turn them into unique high value products so that we can have higher wages, greater profitability, instead of shipping them overseas and buying them back for 10 or 20 times more money. Um, and where we turn our food products into trusted unique products like V2 burgers, if I can add V2 foods, um, unique plant-based proteins, unique products that add, um, that reduce your uh, likely susceptibility to cancer or other diseases that people all over the world trust because they're made in Australia and they're willing to pay a higher price for them. For me, that's the future. And one more thing, diversity. No, seriously, I don't want my children to do what I had to do and go to America to do six companies. Why couldn't they do it here? Why shouldn't they get their science degree here? Why shouldn't they do science-driven innovation in this country? Because otherwise, we can't get that future and diversity. <laughs> well, look, my vision for uh, 2032 is really being able to listen to Larry in his 17th year as chief executive. <laughs> 
of the CSIRO. <laughs> Reflecting, well, he, you know, I, I want you to show the kind of determination and longevity for the CSIRO that Xi Jinping has done for the Communist Party of China. <laughs> you know, it needs a leadership and a stern hand. Uh, but, the, but Malcolm, uh, can I ask, do we all need to be a little bit more like Larry, the way you were describing earlier? The reference was to that self-belief. We need more of that, don't we? We need to be more Larry. Yeah, well, look, you know, I, I agree. I, like, like Larry, I agree with every... I think everyone's... I agree with everyone's remarks. I particularly agree with what's been said about climate change. You've got to remember, you know, the, the, in the renewable world we're heading into, the most of the, almost all of the world's primary generation will be either solar photovoltaics or wind, and almost all of those solar panels are, include technology, the Percel, developed right here in Sydney at the University of New South Wales. So, you know, Australia, uh, I mean, that's a fact. You know, it's a, it's a fun fact. It's actually a great, great partnership despite all the political difficulties between Australia and China. So I agree with all of those, uh, agree with all of those things. And I, and I just, uh, in terms of self-belief, it's absolutely critical. I have always had a confidence problem in my life and I have uh, looked to Larry. Uh, I have, I have. When I, you know, sometimes I wake up in the morning, I look in the mirror and I say, if only I was a bit more like Larry, had that, had that belief that he is. But seriously, if you don't believe in yourself, if you don't believe in yourself, no one else will. And, you know, I just want to say in terms of uh, what Nikki's and, you know, all the, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of a, I don't run a fund, I just, you know, I'm just kind of, I don't know what sort of venture capitalist I am. I'm, I'm putting the adventure back into venture capitalism, but, but, the, but I just want to say, the, the, you've got to have faith in the founders. That is the critical thing. It is the most important thing. The where, where venture capitalists do their most damage is when they say, oh, we better get some grown-ups in here. You know, we better need to get some grey hair. I've got nothing against grey hair, white hair. But, you know, you've got to believe that it's, it's all about the founders. It's all about their self-belief. Obviously, avoid lunatics and megalomaniacs. But uh, you've got to back them because it is, it is the people who are prepared to be different, to be unusual, that are going to make uh, the difference. And as long as we continue doing that, we can do anything. I mean, this, this startup scene in Australia is massive. It is, it's, and it's due to all of you and many others like you. And I just, uh, you know, as an old uh, Prime Minister and an old self-funded retiree, I just want to thank you because, <laughs> honestly, the future of the country depends on you. Keep it up for our extraordinary panel. To Alan, Preethi, Marina, Cheryl, Nikki, Michelle, Larry, and, of course, Malcolm. It has been my honour and privilege to run this panel. Guys, clap yourselves as well. Thank you. Back to you, Lauren. So we're, we're coming to the final part of the, uh, the formal proceedings for the evening. Uh, it's time to put the spotlight on the heroes of tonight. Um, so actually, it's funny. I said, please welcome Fishburner's CEO, but my, um, my autocorrect has turned it into Fishburner's hero. So <laughs> we'll go with that. Please welcome Fishburner's hero, industry stalwart and series patron, Alan Jones, back to the stage as he interviews the team behind the history of the Australian Startup Ecosystem podcast, Adam Spencer, Andy Jones, and William Cho. Adam, Will, Andy, thank you very much for creating this piece of art. 
uh, this this history of the Australian tech startup industry. But uh, I want to start out with 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 Adam here. Adam, put your hand up for everybody. This is Adam, everybody. Adam and I have a bit of fun every now and again because I don't know if you follow media figures, but there used to be another Alan Jones. Um, and of course, this Adam is Adam Spencer. And so when Adam Spencer and Alan Jones get together, magic happens. Um, we, we got together, um, I, I don't think it was, I think the podcast was called Welcome to Day One, wasn't it? Yeah. Right at the very yeah. beginning. Yeah. What did you think you were doing when you started out Welcome to Day One? Because it wasn't a history of the tech startup industry. No, I, I started Welcome to Day One falling in love with listening to founders talk for half an hour. The reason why I started Welcome to Day One is because I, I wanted to do more of that. I wanted to talk to founders more because the spark that founders have, just the passion they have, I wanted to steal some of that. Yeah, that's why, that's why I started Welcome to Day One. So I could turn talking to founders to make that my day job. The first round of, of episodes wasn't entirely about people in tech either. It was just entrepreneurship in general in your community in the Newcastle region, wasn't it? Yeah, well, yes. I'm from Newcastle, so I wanted to, I really wanted to spotlight regional founders um, because there wasn't a whole lot of that happening. Uh, and yeah, that's that's where Welcome Today once started, but our mission is getting bigger and bigger the longer we go. The experience for you, I guess, has been similar to, to a, any kind of startup entrepreneur. You've had to figure out who your customer is, see if you can find something yeah. that they're interested in, and, and then figure out a way to, to make this sustainable and monetizable. Um, well, just touch on a couple of, of, of the biggest challenges that you've had. Yeah, making money podcasting. <laughs> I, I started podcasting in 2012. I've started a half a dozen different podcasts over the years, and uh, Welcome Today One is the first one that has, you know, been sustainable. That's been a very long road, um, making podcasting a full-time job. <laughs> so Andy and Will, um, you guys are, are the content machine, the, the, the production machine behind the Welcome to Day One uh, uh, series. How did you meet Adam? How did Adam find you? How did you each get involved? Well, I first started working with Adam uh, four or so years ago, I believe. I have a background as a photographer and video producer. I'm not from the startup world. I mostly have worked with small businesses telling their stories. I started doing some audio work with Adam when we started the Welcome to Day One podcast. Had a lot of fun. And then when this project got off the ground, he really brought me on in a much, uh, in a bigger way. <laughs> where there's been a lot more work. The scale of the project, I think, took us a bit by surprise. <laughs> uh, and you? Well, I was a first-time founder when I was 18 years old. I was going through university, and like many people with immigrant parents, they said, well, it's either law, medicine, or engineering. And I thought, this couldn't be my life. So I decided to create a sustainable product development company. At that point in time, I met one of my dearest friends and mentors, Alex Carpenter. He was an associate um, professor in entrepreneurship at the University of Sydney. At that time, he was like, look, you don't know anything about entrepreneurship. When I came to him with a bunch of ideas, he was like, why don't you sit down with the amazing network we have here at the University of Sydney? Every single conversation that I had, I was like, man, I really wish that I could record that conversation. And I was like, wait, I can. So I decided to create a podcast on behalf of the University of Sydney whilst I was studying. And then once I've graduated, Alex introduced me to Adam. And that's how I ended up joining Welcome to Day One. That's very cool. Can, can I ask you both um, ab about some of the stats involved in, in producing this series? Uh, uh, how many interviews did you conduct? Too many to count. 
Two in a count? <laughs> About 150 at last count, I believe. Do you have a sense for how many hours of original recorded material? There's more than 100 hours of audio that have been recorded. Um, much, all of the interviews, not all of, but uh, more than 100 of the interviews that we've conducted have been released as standalone episodes. So what we're kind of launching today is a six-part series that designed to be a chronological telling of the story. But there are also 100-plus conversations as standalone episodes that have been created. So uh, regular listeners will be familiar with Adam's voice. He, he tops and tails each episode and does the reads of the, of, of the sponsor's ads. On average, how many takes does he require to, <laughs> to nail one? <laughs> Adam came around to my home studio to record the voiceover for the first three episodes of the series the other day, and I've got to say, his hit rate was pretty good. I think he's, I think he's gotten pretty good at it. Natural podcaster, just not in front of people. <laughs> So guys, uh... <laughs> we're definitely more comfortable pointing our microphones yeah. than having them pointed at us. Yes. Yeah, I like asking the questions, not answering them. <laughs> so, so um, you know, this one's in the can. This one's out there on the networks. What next for the team from Welcome to Day One? Uh, well, I will just say, um, everyone that come tonight should have an email from me with the first three episodes. Uh, they will, those three episodes, we're still working on it, to be honest. Uh, we've got three more episodes to go. Uh, we hope to have all six released to the public um, by the end of November. Um, and then next, like it's been mentioned many times um, tonight even, and, and in the 150 interviews that we, we did, uh, diversity has come up so many times. So what we want to do next, um, and you know, I wasn't going to announce this because I don't even know if we can get it going, um, but we want to exclusive. <laughs> we we want to um, start a podcast specifically to highlight underrepresented voices in Australian tech. Um, that's an awesome goal. Yeah, well that that's next. There's a and there's a climate series coming out. I don't want to talk too much about that. And uh, uh, yeah, we've got a we've got a number of different projects on on the you know on the whiteboard early planning stages. So Adam, Andy, Will, I, I just wanted to thank you. Uh, I was involved a few, many years ago now on something called the Start Rail Map, where we tried to make a sort of a, a tube network diagram of, of the Australian tech startup ecosystem, and, and it, it failed to scale. It was impossible because the Australian tech industry grew so fast. And one of the problems with an industry that grows really fast is that it's really, really hard to figure out how it happened and who it happened to and, and where it happened. And the, the, the content that I've listened to of the series so far has been the best retelling of the history of our industry. And I think we all owe you a huge round of applause for, for your efforts, for your work in this. So thank you. Thank you all. It really has been our pleasure. It's been a delight to work on the show. Absolutely. I, I do want to just quickly thank you know everybody, all the panelists that come up. Um, I am surprised that any of them said yes when I asked them to, to do it, um, and also very surprised um, you know of how many people actually said yes to an interview with me for the series. Uh, you know, we couldn't have made it without them, um, and also um, to really the founders. Like this, that is the entire reason we, we made this show um, because I absolutely adore founders and their passion for what they're, what they're building um, and that's why I'm going to continue to make podcasts like this for them. Awesome. You can't be what you can't see. 
right? But you also can't be what you need to be if you don't know where we've come from. And you guys have helped us with that. Thank you so very much.